the artist Richard Wentworth turned round and asked the room, said how many of you have dug a hole? And probably three hands out of 50 went up. Welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture Podcast Series. I'm your host, Island Nosley, and this week's episode features an interview between Tom Emerson and Jack Murphy, current MARC candidate and co-editor for Plat 8.0. Tom visited Houston as a guest speaker for the Cullinan Lecture Series. Their conversation includes thoughts on materiality, architecture's relationship to nature, and the scalar process of design. Tom Emerson is a founding director of 6A Architects in London. He is a professor at the ETH Department of Architecture in Zurich and a recipient of several awards from the Royal Institute of British Architects. Let's tune in. Tom, thank you for being here. Could you tell me about what 6A is working on currently? Um, Yeah, hi, thanks for inviting me. Um, At the moment, we are building actually quite internationally. We're finishing a gallery for um, in Milton Keynes, the Milton Keynes Gallery, MK Gallery, which will open it in March. It's um, technically an extension to a contemporary art gallery, but in fact the extension is considerably bigger than the um, original, and that's a kind of an important project for us um, in a kind of utopian new town. Um, we are building a housing scheme in Hamburg at the moment, which is um, coming out of the ground. I think the basements are more or less done in Hafen City, so along the harbour. We are doing a contemporary art gallery in New York, in um, West Village, um, not-for-profit contemporary art foundation. It's a kind of refurbishment, transformation of an existing building. We're doing a big mixed-use project in Melbourne, and Oh, a series of other fashion-related, art-related, um, private houses, um, and I think I'm going to draw a blank any second now. Um, I should know better, but yeah, quite. A but it's a quite a lot of work. Quite a lot of. Projects. And it's a new, relatively recent thing for you to work internationally. Is that true? Yes, I suppose it's relative. Whenever we're sort of speaking about our work, we're usually talking. Um, the present is usually about five years old. Right. That's the kind of nature of architecture. In terms of the work that came through the pipeline. Yeah. So any anything that we're talking about now probably started four or five years ago. So to us it's not new. Right. But the moment it becomes visible, it sort of seems like it sort of happened all of a sudden when many of these things are kind of um, rumbling along for quite a while before they become properly a project. The relationships start and then the buildings come, you know, much later exactly and anywhere between five to ten years after after you start so it's quite a slow slow business when you're working around the world like that does that change um, how you and the office design is there a different approach or set of concerns that's an interesting question I'm not sure if I'm entirely able to answer it I think we'll have to see when the first things finish the aim I think is not, in a sense, the people who've asked us to work in Melbourne or New York or Hamburg could have asked somebody local, right? So in a sense, I think that they want us to do it or we won the competition because we brought something to the table. But I don't think you can ever transfer your method from your home turf into another one, even within the UK for that matter. 
Um, so things do change, um, but I think that they are probably more to do with the environment around you than than in yourself. You don't suddenly decide to be international. You're just who you are. But maybe you're being stimulated by a different set of conditions, um, and then that produces a different kind of work. So I expect that the work will be different, but I couldn't tell you exactly how. Right, and certainly different ways of building, right, that show up around the world, if yes, you agree uh, with that. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, let's say New York, Germany, Australia, and the UK are f very different um, building cultures um, in a kind of really interesting way. I mean, I, 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 I deliberately don't, in a sense, look at it in a kind of judgmental way that some places are great, some places are less so. It's more that each one just plays itself out differently. And I think that's, uh, in many respects, really exciting. Like that 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 process of design which is trying to understand how it works and how you can make the best of the occasion that concern of how it works and how materials are put together seems like a consistent ongoing interest for 6a could you maybe speak a little bit about that I, I could ask a better question about that if you want. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, no, no. I what mean about materials? What about materials? No, of course they're they're incredibly important in our work. I would say f mainly for possibly kind of natural or pragmatic reasons, in that our work started in London, and uh, you could say in the kind of fashion art world, and generally they were in existing buildings. Uh, and generally in existing buildings with a hell of a lot of history. Um, most of that history is pretty messy. It's kind of non-linear and quite approximate, quite opportunistic, um, crisscrossing. So there is not much opportunity in that world to invent new shapes, essentially. The, um, the shapes are that little corner of town between one thing and another that you're left with. And that's where you need to kind of make um, make the work so in the end the only thing that's left for you is a kind of a kind of materiality which can give a project its kind of character and kind of engagement with both the program that you're making it for and with the place and it's kind of uh, multiple histories and I think it's often easiest and the least literal way of responding to a context to pick up on the on the kind of material histories which actually align usually very closely with social histories and other events so whether it be a, a strangely documented fire in a project which somehow has left a couple of photographs but no evidence that the fire ever happened became an opportunity to look at things like the tradition of charred timber that there is in Japan and then how that could be kind of played out again or in central London we've done a couple of projects with cast iron which was a kind of response to the the kind of streetscape of London which is a primarily a kind of clay based bricky city but all its equipment is in cast iron railings decorative features um, but also the infrastructure the drain covers and all that stuff so it felt like the sort of the the quiet operator in the London street scene is cast iron the street lamps and all of that so that became interesting for us to to kind of explore to kind of try and develop a kind of material thesis that will incorporate all sorts of other kind of conditions um, again without feeling the need to invent geometries and shapes and things like that of which we have so few anyway so it sounds like part of it is 
the kind of concerns of being a young architect and the kinds of projects that you start with, right, which are can be smaller in size and smaller in scope, and then you kind of grow. But it also seems like there are decisions made that that's an important part of the investigation that you would do as a set of architects making work. So I guess my question is, if it was something that you were obsessed with before you started 6A, or if it was something that came out of the process of beginning an office and starting to make work? It's probably a bit of both. So there, it, there, it was a kind of an obsession before when we were at college. Steph and I were, I think, very heavily influenced by a few things that were going on at the time. This is in the mid-90s. First of all, there was the sort of the arrival on the scene in the very early 90s of Herzog and de Meuron. So at a time when, in architecture school, the big battle was, let's say, between postmodernism and deconstruction, you know, in a sense, both kind of American imports, um, architecturally at least. Um, and then suddenly these kind of, you know, a couple of guys from Basel turn up with these, uh, with a kind of another position, which is way more abstract, incredibly visceral, very uh, materially intense and formally reduced. And that seemed incredibly fresh. I mean, it seemed like somehow they had found a way through a kind of uh, an opposition that we couldn't really relate to. Um, and then Steph was then also taught by... Peter Sinjin and Adam Caruso, who were kind of, you could say, playing out another variation on a similar kind of rejection of those, those opposite poles, which involved a lot of engagement with um, the world as you find it. Um, so the idea of being very attentive to the world that surrounds you rather than somehow internalizing a kind of theoretical position and then externalizing it through either postmodernism or other kind of formal expression became in increasingly interesting to us. And then I think there were other things like, I mean, on one level, the early work we did was is often referred to, not by me, but by others, as being quite crafted. Um, is that a term you take offense to? No, I don't take offense to it, but it makes me feel quite uncomfortable because it has so many different associations. And at its worst, I think it's kind of rather sort of self-righteous and pious and uh, incredibly conservative and boring. Um, at its best, it involves um, a great deal of skill and a kind of richness that has a kind of depth to it. It also can be, on one level, very conservative. At the same time, it also has a history of very kind of radical politics associated with it. So. Um, that's why I feel uncomfortable because I'm aware of its multiple meanings. Um, but one of the one of the architects that um, also very interested in um, totally fascinated by is early Geary work, and I just love the inventiveness that he kind of found in essentially commercial real estate, and you know the, the timber frame and. Um, many of those early buildings, it feels like they could be built by any commercial carpenter. You know, there is no detail that is not part of the standard lexicon of um, of a kind of professional skilled carpenter. I mean, these are not stupid buildings. These are really smart buildings, but they're not sort of crafted. They have a kind of economy within their invention. So one question I had was about teaching. You mm -hmm. teach at the ATH mm -hmm. in Zurich. And one of the things that we talked about earlier was different material cultures influencing how 
what you find when you search and how you can build. And so I'm assume I'm projecting here, but you probably travel back and forth between London and Zurich to do that work. And so I'm wondering how your your experience and time in Zurich and in Switzerland uh, affects what you can do. And then more generally, what do you get from teaching and how teaching impacts what you do? <coughs> yes, yeah, so I, I teach at ETH. I have done since 2010 now, so quite a few years. And before that, I was teaching in Cambridge in the UK and at the AA. So I've been teaching for a long time. I'm in fact, I've been teaching for as long as I've been practicing. So it's difficult to be entirely objective about it because I don't know better. Um, it's just what you've done. It's just, yeah, it's just what I do. Um, I think that probably most practicing architects who teach will probably say the same, is it gives you uh, an incredibly stimulating kind of forum for extending the ideas that you're playing with in practice um, in a kind of educational field. So you're able to, you know, in a sense, to put it very crudely, take half a thought and then take it into a school of architecture and then see if it can become a full thought. And then, you know, and then also you're surrounded by students who have an appetite for pushing their own journey um, through the subject hard and uh, creatively, and that's always stimulating. They also, uh, students ten generally refuse to accept the kind of the, the norms of the profession to be an adequate explanation of what you do, you know, budgets, time frames, you know, blah, 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 clients, you know, they want to talk about architecture and what it means to the world. So it means that you're always having to step out of the office and reflect on what you're doing in the office in a kind of wider setting. Does, does this mean anything? Does it matter? To what extent am I being caught up in professional procedures? And likewise, in the teaching, that you um, are able to bring uh, some sort of concrete reality to the teaching that actually, you know, um, you and your thoughts are not big enough to constitute a kind of a position um, in, in architecture, that you, your thoughts have to then somehow be grounded in right. some way. And I don't mean that in a kind of dull sort of procedural way, more that the context in which you work is a is deeply political and involves lots and lots of decisions and judgments creatively politically and that that essentially that to and froing between producing the architecture and in to say you know running a studio and teaching people is a very sort of um, fruitful thing of course you also meet wonderful people I mean quite a few people in our office are people that hmm have been in my studio at various times and you know you could say you know it's the longest interview in the world you know it lasts a year and you can really you can you can make very very deep professional relationships and, and collaborations that extend way beyond architecture school i think in one of the interviews in the elk key that just came out there's a, a story about some director at the eth asking you you know what you wanted or something and you said give me a garden something like that and so you have a place where students can make work in an environment. And it, I guess the, the power of the garden comes through in like the, the house for Jürgen Teller. Mm -hmm. So uh, what good is a garden for you? 
there are many reasons for our interest in the garden and I, su I suspect that the garden is one is one manifestation of maybe a increasingly urgent interest in what that thing we call nature is so nature doesn't have to be a garden but gardens do form part of nature so the origins of that kind of interest have been partly in the kind of the landscape setting of the work in which we were doing the in the office so we started the early work was really all incredibly urban really really sort of dense mayfair spitalfields peckham um, and so on and then suddenly the work cracked open into backyards and suddenly there was this sort of world of outdoor space and there was a question about how do you um, design external spaces with the same specificity and intensity as, as an interior um, and as we started treating them more or less the same that they were kind of rooms so and then those rooms would get a sort of specificity through planting or through other kind of material constructive means we became increasingly interested in the ground um, as a sort of space not as a surface and what it could sustain in terms of use in terms of kind of um, environments so that kind of grew into an increasing interest in these types of in-between spaces um, that shouldn't be in-between spaces they are places in their own right and essentially when you when you're when you get the position at ETH, you apply to the president for your kind of startup budget. You know, if you're a scientist, it's to make your lab. Or and um, I said that I I didn't want a garden. I wanted a piece of land in order to make a garden, and that we would do a series of one-to-one student-made projects um, over time, and these ones would oscillate between. Um, planting seasons in spring and then building seasons in autumn where essentially every cycle of students has to build on top of the previous so there's kind of layering process that would go on that every cycle of students would have to look after what their previous cycles had done so there's a kind of whole condition of care associated with design which I was very interested in people like Latour talks about it and also there's a process of the slowness in which the environment works. I mean, I was just talking about how quickly the forest reclaims the city, but if you look at it from the position of a student in a semester, it's incredibly slow. So to do a series of projects in which there w the consequences of your actions will be felt over a very long period of time. So it's trying to introduce some of these notions of care, of the passage of time, of the layering of uh, your work over other people's work, to try and bring a more profound understanding of the ground. Um, during a crit a few years before, the, um, the artist Richard Wentworth, who's been very also a very influential person on our work, turned around and asked the room, said, how many of you have dug a hole? And probably three hands out of 50 went up. He said, you know, Everybody in my generation has dug a hole. Here you are, a bunch of architects, all drawing your sections, all setting your work into the ground, and you have no bloody idea what goes on down there. Right. You know, it's just this black line that separates air from stuff, and it's like this surface that we all kind of uh, uh, seem to operate on. But in fact, it's a very complex space. 
And I think that the idea of making the garden is to try and make people deeply aware of how complex that space is and how how unproductive it is when it's badly treated and how productive it is when it's well treated. And we are in large part responsible for its effectiveness and deficiencies now in the world. So there's a sort of met kind of metaphorical idea of the architect's kind of engagement with ground as a as a kind of foundational space for for architecture. I um recently went to Portugal to look mm. at the work of Soto de Mora and my research proposal here at Rice was quite dumb. It was to look at how his buildings touch the ground because mm. there's a very clear skill in how he manipulates the ground to get his buildings to float or to dig in or to kind of plop on top. And so th I was going around northern Portugal just taking pictures of foundations and stairs and guardrails and cracks and plaster and things like that. And so, like you're saying, a lot of people might take the ability to dig a hole for granted, but it's quite a political thing to recontour the earth like that. I was also there to look at Caesar's work, and I have been reading that Caesar's important to you. What do you think about when you see his work? What did you take from it? What do you take from it? Well, um, I mean, I'm glad you 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 sort of did that trip. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I would fully agree. I mean, it goes back to your thing. That like, is this kind of looking at a sort of very kind of um, prosaic, shall we call it, level, interesting? And of course, you know, the moment you sort of go, well, how does an architect meet the ground? somebody like a great architect like Suta de Mora, of course that will keep on giving. And interestingly, Suta de Mora and um, Caesar share an office. Right. Yeah, they're in the same building. And uh, yes, Caesar has been incredibly important to us, but there is a sort of profound engagement with ground. That engagement with ground seems to match a sort of social engagement with society that he works for, and I think is very explicit in his politics that it's really about uh, the public as a thing. He had a very profound effect on us. I mean, one of the things I like about it is because it was so specific to its place meant that it's non-transferable. So there was never any pressure to sort of take this thing that you really, you're really moved by and then to try and do a Caesar because you can't do a Caesar. Even Caesar can't do a Caesar outside Portugal, I would right. argue. It's not completely true, but his work is very different, I think, outside Portugal. And when the work in Portugal, you feel like it has um, incredibly natural knowledge to how it is, what it is, what it does. I was reading on the website, you recently curated a show of his drawings. Yeah. Could you maybe speak a little bit about that? So his, I mean, it's a long story, but I'll try and be brief about it. He, Caesar's archive is now divided between, I think, four institutions, um, the CCA, uh, the Gulbenkian, the Seralves Museum in Porto, and Drawing Matter in the UK. And there may be others, um, but that's the, the main holdings. And um, in the Seralves Museum, designed by Caesar, the head of architecture, Carles Muro, has started a series of exhibitions kind of curated by architects responding to the archive. So they invite practicing archive practicing architects who he thinks have been influenced by Caesar's work or have an affinity towards it to go into the archive and somehow make a show from 
some several thousand drawings that they have. And um, of course, that's a very daunting task because it's very difficult to say anything new about Caesar, particularly of his drawings. I mean, there are countless books on his sketches and things like that, travel sketches, portraits, um, more architectural ones. Um, but what I discovered in the archive, particularly around some of the very early projects, was the quality of the draftsmanship in working drawings, construction drawings, but also the evolution of his own architectural language, that the first projects, which is the four houses, Matashinos, which is just north of uh, Porto, the detailing is totally traditional. It's as if, like, some old traditional carpenter had said, this is how you do it, with all the little bevels and kind of there's a kind of very deep knowledge of making in them and then as you go through those a few of those projects in Porto over the first 20 years of his career so from the mid 50s to the mid 70s when the revolution in 74 um, you see with every project that very traditional uh, carpentry developing into a, a very the much more recognizably Caesar language of planar openings and surrounds to openings, emphases and uh, erasure of the way that the opening um, sort of forms the architecture. Um, and I found that, and these were all drawings that came from his own hand. So this is, so this was my kind of rule, was there had to be drawings by Caesar of construction details, often one-to-one. -one. And you get a sense of um, another side of Caesar, which is not just a sort of intuitive kind of lyrical sketching angels flying over his buildings and so on, that you get this the idea of the architect at work, the architect as a kind of professional, right. um, which is also really interesting because it seems to correspond to a certain political position that he takes, that you know it is our job as architects to work on behalf of society. And for that, we need to be professional. And uh, that's the expertise that we can deliver is and at that. And I know stuff. Yes, right. exactly. I, it's a kind of expertise which is delivered on behalf of the users, the clients. The and I thought that it was there in an incredibly direct way in these kind of um, five projects. I mean, there could have been many more, there could have been fewer. Mm -hmm. But the idea of Caesar as kind of totally having his feet on the ground, having learnt on site being really engaged with the very substance of the architecture, um, which I think then becomes less visible later because then he starts having an office with more people, more assistants, um, the jobs get bigger, therefore the detailing gets less intense. It's also to do with means. Once he was doing the social housing from the 70s onwards, the material palette becomes more reduced because of the, the means. So to me, it was a really... Um, it's a small, it's a very small show. It's a one-room show, but it's one that somehow, hopefully, just presents another Caesar, which is that kind of um, you know a worker Caesar. You know, he's properly working in an old-fashioned sort of professionalized sense of it, as opposed to the mythologized artist Caesar. They both exist, right. but one of them is more visible than the other, and one of them turned into the other in a sense of you get the origin or the kind of beginning hand before, you know, he blew up or, as you said, w was able to hire other people to draw yes, for him. I think he's always done it. I mean, uh, over the course of this exhibition, I met him twice, and it was quite funny that he is utterly restless 
I mean, he couldn't spend the first 30 seconds without grabbing a pen and paper. Um, so he had one hand where he just didn't stop sketching, and in the other hand, he didn't stop smoking. And right. It was quite interesting, just like watching this kind of relentless sort of activity going on as he spoke about things. Totally interesting. I mean, he remembers the position of hinges in the first projects that he did in Matashimas in 1954. He was 21. It was amazing. And then, you know, he told kind of fantastic stories about carpenters from northern Portugal and southern Portugal and being totally different beasts. You know, and all of that was just, and this was kind of spontaneous, spontaneously kind of um, delivered by, by Caesar. And, uh, and it confirmed something which I guess I thought already when we saw his work was the profound assimilation of a, of a culture and actually many cultures in his work which is maybe why it feels so um, so powerful it's quite powerful work mm. one thing that came up in this conversation and in a kind of a previous one is the idea of working at one-to-one and architects typically draw at a scale that's distant from the space or objects that they're making, and then those spaces or objects are made by other people. And working and thinking at that scale connects you to the real world mm. in a way. And I'm wondering how you, if you draw a lot at that scale, or if you think at that scale, or how you engage with working kind of directly like that to get to that directness mm. that you um, seem to be interested in. I suppose that, um, in many respects, I'm not that interested in working at one to one. Oh, okay. Right. We can cut this. No, part no, no, out no. Because <laughs> it's, it's important because a lot of people think that that I am. Right. Um, I'm. You can set the record straight. Yeah, I can set the record straight. Um, no, I'm. I'm interested in working at multiple scales. Actually, I think that's the fundamental thing. I think that being able to be close to and then step away from and then close to again that the iterative process is the key to it. It is not that the all-seeing overview is distancing and lacks intimacy and all the rest of it, and that the the kind of hand of the maker will sort of be our salvation. Um, that is not the case. And to some extent, even though I do a lot of projects which involve one-to-one -one making, I'm not that interested in them becoming craftsmen or that sort of thing. I'm interested in a certain kind of confidence that you know it's not so mysterious that you can't be involved but uh, no I am much more interested in the constant oscillation between scales between what are the consequences of the work at one scale to another and it goes in both directions I mean um, a small material action a small sort of attitude towards making a wall or a window one way and then you multiply that by 500 times because it's a big building, it will fundamentally change the condition of that building in urban terms. Likewise, the strategic decisions at a kind of um, much larger urban scale will totally determine the opportunities and constraints uh, at a building scale. And essentially, I suppose the, the work that I find uh, the most interesting is the one that's capable of carrying meaning at both scales which is perhaps why people like the early work of Hertel and de Meuron. Their work has this incredible power, you know, sometimes 500 metres away, just as a sort of enigmatic, blind kind of box. Right. But, um, but they're very mysterious. They're very, they're very kind of difficult to describe. And then when you get up close to them, 
they're also really difficult to describe because they almost turn into kind of pure materiality. Almost, you know, I mean, they often refer to people like Joseph Boyce and things like that. And then Joseph Boyce used fat as a kind of example of something which is pure materiality. It has no form. Fat has no form. It just has its own innate fattiness. Um, and I think that uh, Herzog and Muron's work can have, on one level, can be these kind of sort of enigmatic objects in the landscape, extremely powerful in relation to other elements, whether they're kind of constructed or mountains or rivers. And at the same time, up close, there is a very, very kind of direct and kind of intimate engagement with it. Um, and I so that's what I, I, I suppose that's why I say I'm not that interested in one to one. Right, but the oscillation between the two is the oscillation is the between kind the of two skill that you is kind of have to sharpen as an architect. And that's why we do this kind of thing where we do we make projects and then we do these kind of massive surveys, these kind of atlases, and then after you sort of somehow remap the world, then you go back and then you kind of make a fence, and then you go back then to the big scale again and. So I would say that that's I'm much more interested in this kind of dynamic relationship between scales mm -hmm. than one being somehow more worthy than another. It's I'm not just zooming in and yeah. then something becomes yeah. more powerful than the other thing. Let's see. I guess a couple other questions, if that's okay. Sure. So the term environment you've used a lot. It's quite important. Um, the title of your talk, which you'll be giving at Rice, is Never Natural which has environmental implications. Um, and so I'm wondering, I guess, how, how, the how you use the term environmental, how, how 6A becomes environmental or works in an environmental way. We've talked about some of this, but maybe there are um, kind of climactic or other concerns that you're working with uh, in your work that would come up as part of a discussion about environment. Environment, the word specifically. Um, if that's what you're thinking about with a title like Never Natural. I don't know what you're going well, to say yet, so yeah. I could be wrong. Um, I mean, I basically, I feel like I've just done the lecture. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> we can talk about something else. <laughs> no, no, um, it's fine. Um, Never Natural is more a provocation, I suppose, in that I am interested in how we as architects understand the world that our work exists in. And you could say that, you know, right the way through from the Enlightenment, certainly from the Enlightenment, maybe further back to throughout modernism, there's a sense that architecture exists outside of nature, that nature is something that is outside of human action, and then that we will, that we can manage that relationship between architecture and nature, which I think is kind of, in a sense, the foundation of a kind of profound misunderstanding that architecture is natural, and so are we. And so are all the creepy crawlies that go on in the ground that we were talking about earlier on. And, you know, for every tree that is sort of cut and pasted into an architecture drawing is a root ball of equivalent size that is going to um, do stuff. And it may do stuff which is incredibly productive and life-giving, and it may do stuff that's incredibly damaging, you know, and, you know, uh, pop up your foundations and bring you all those cracks that you talked that you saw in them. Um, in Portugal. So in a sense this idea of never natural is to try and get out of this very kind of picturesque worldview that nature is something that is over there that can be seen, that can be framed, but that really do doesn't have to be engaged with. That nature is something that seems to operate at a completely visual level. 
And so this idea, so I suppose, I mean, I, I don't really have the answers, but it's trying to bring some sort of reflection on that condition and how we may wor make work that maybe is more profoundly aware and engaged in its own nature. I agree. Um, maybe a final question. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things that we've been talking about are about very small things, you know, as bits of buildings or natural objects or entities, uh, quite small relative to the scale of a city or a planet. And I guess there's a kind of stillness and quiet in the images of your work that I've seen. I haven't been to see any mm -hmm. buildings yet, um, but I appreciate that. It seems quite quiet in its depiction, although obviously that's never quite the case. And so I guess I'm just wondering, thinking politically now, the power of working on quiet projects versus loud projects and what that kind of way of being in the world opens up and how that is a type of politics as much as making an icon as a type of politics or being political is an explicit version. Does that question make sense? I'll try. I'll try and I'll try and make sense of it. Um, the quietness of it, I think, there's an element of truth to that that the work's quite understated, which I quite like. Maybe it's even it's not even so much about what I like or I don't like, which I don't think is very interesting. It's more what we are predisposed to do. In fact, there are certain types of very loud, noisy work which I really like. You know, certain kind of pop, postmodernism which I wish I could do, but I ca just can't. Right. Just you know, and I'm glad other people can. But in terms of the kind of political dimension to it, I mean, partly there is an element in the representation and in the photography. It generally is in the quiet moments. Sure. For pragmatic reasons as well as sort of choices on our part. Things like uh, Jürgen Teller's studio, for example, one critic described it as being os oscillating between being like having a kind of monastic kind of quietness, the quietness of a kind of rural monastery, and then flipping from one day to the next into a Baroque court. Because when it's going for a shoot, it's, it's nuts. You know, there are over a hundred people, props, stage sets, you know, it's kind of proper Hollywood. It's perhaps not always as quiet as it seems. Um, but even when it gets wild, I think there's still an idea that these places are, their background condition is somehow absorbing. So I don't particularly worry about it. I mean, the project we're doing for Milton Keynes is a bit more demonstrative, but it's still just a box, actually. It's a, but it's a very shiny box. It's extremely shiny, um, and it's got a big circular hole in it. I mean, maybe that's that that's about as expressive as, uh, <laughs> as, as, as we'll get, and then okay. we'll just turn back to the quiet things again. <laughs> But I think that comes up even in like the idea of hmm. or imagining you're the person who uses this school on a daily basis in terms of like the projection that you hmm. might have. There's an empathy there that if you kind of zoom in as and zoom out, you you may be more aware aware of everyone's humanity in some kind of squishy way. Yeah, and also also aware enough that my own likes and dislikes, my own somehow subjectivities and stuff like that are in the end not that interesting and um, you know I have them just like everybody else and I don't think they count for any less than anybody else's but they're not particularly reliable or useful instruments to make work 
Um, I mean, you can't avoid your own temperament, so you do what you do. But I also kind of quite enjoy working outside of my comfort zone. Um, uh, although some of you might just say, like, my comfort zone is so narrow that it's not very difficult <laughs> to get out of it. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's not my problem. Um, <laughs> so, Tom, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for being here and for participating in our lecture series and being here at Rice. Um, we hope you have a great time here. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. If you happen to find yourself in Portugal during winter break, be sure to check out Tom's exhibition on Cesar's drawings in Porto. For more information, visit the latest news tab on the Rice Architecture website. Don't forget to subscribe to our page on SoundCloud to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Island Nosley, and this has been Tete a Tete.